Hello everybody and welcome back to the Jack Throwful Show. We are back in the studio for episode 9 and there is so much to get into this week, so let's get started. I think after such a dramatic finale, it's been nice to have a little bit of a winter break in uh, all the categories really. With the Formula 1 season ending the way it did with controversy and confusion mostly among most people watching, I think a lot of people was the only race they watched that year. I mean, for most of the UK, you know, it was on free to broadcast television and it was a really big event to see Lewis Hamilton take on that championship, take on the eighth and, and to see whether he could bring it home. So for it to end in that way, I think especially with the way Mercedes reacted in their media presence and the way, you know, Hamilton's retirement was thrown around and, and the way interviews were being conducted surrounding the whole situation. It's been nice to have some distance from it and, and to really take stock of, of what actually happened and uh, mostly what lessons can be learned from it. It's easy to say that everyone wants clean, fair racing and everyone wants a competitive championship and to have the drivers make the difference. But the reality of that is that to implement that style of presentation and to present a racing product in such a way, it's really complicated. And I think speed at which people were trying to come up with controversial reactions and hot takes regarding scenarios like that and ones throughout the Formula One season this year, not exclusively in Formula One either. I mean, it's a tendency that happens in NASCAR, IndyCar, MotoGP, when at the end of the day, people are competing and people do have these teams behind them, you know, they're looking to, to lay everything on the line and, and do they, the most they can to win. And the setting up of rivalries and whatever, beefs and history, part of it is real. Part of it is always going to play a role in, in the racing and the way people behave and decision-making structures. But I think part of it, you know, you, you have to realise the teams are more similar than they are different. I mean, as much as they are competing they might have different philosophies or they might have different management styles or media strategies but they are more similar than different i think everyone shared passion for racing and, and shared passion for pushing the limits of innovation sort of got lost in in the debate after that race everyone was so angry on on who was right and who was wrong you know what, what the consequences of that situation should be and, and the right way to move forward but i think a little bit of, of division and and sort of a, just a lack of fairness and a, a lack of standard of, of communication was kind of disappointing to see after that. And I hope on this show what we can do uh, is be a sort of counterbalance to that, to be the place where everyone gets to say it. And while I'm always going to put my critical view on things and tell you what I think, because that's all I can really do, I can't tell you what other people think. I can't describe other people's emotions or, or what's inside their head, but what I can do is tell you what I think about it and, uh, I, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing the best I can to be fair and balanced and, and to get you all the best information. So in light of that, I think the changes that we might see to Formula One, obviously with that big new regulatory package that's coming in, I think alongside that, there will be some sort of simplification of the rules surrounding safety car. Maybe we'll see more red flags next year. We'll see a, a structure that requires less of a panic and a confusion when you're trying to get problems solved to deliver those in a way that is going to be more understandable to the audience watching. As we've already said, a lot of that audience who's watching their first Formula One race in, in a long time, you know, to have British television, have a free-to-air Formula One race is really important. We get the British Grand Prix every year, but obviously that was right in the middle of the championship and uh, very controversial in and of itself, but it wasn't really going to be the deciding factor for the championship, no matter what happened. I mean, we saw a 25-point swing Hamilton's way and we saw a really dramatic victory in, in Britain. So maybe a lot of people, it was their second race of the season where they'd seen Hamilton rise in, in controversy and, and, and victory at the British Grand Prix. To bring that along then to 
the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix where it was a similar it was a similar effect. It was a it was a a race that was to some extent externally determined. I mean, Verstappen through really powerful uses of teamwork and, and strategy was able to take pole in qualifying. Then he got pipped on the first lap. Tricky track limits problem there. And and uh, you know, we can rehash the whole thing. We don't really need to. I think we know the the path forward is is to just learn the lessons from it and um and sort of get on with it and hope that next year we can be sort of better and clearer and, and fairer in every facet. I think that's what everyone really wants. If if uh you know the true passion for racing to represent that, you know, when you're looking to the future of racing to to deliver, you know, a fair sport, it needs to be simplified. It needs to be more obvious. It needs to be understandable to new fans because, you know, obviously the technology, the complicated uh, nature of the cars and the engineering, it's always going to be a certain amount that is off limits. You know, there are going to be things that teams have to keep secret in terms of how their cars work. And, and those things may be, you know, things that impact the broadcast and the racing product that we can never know about. But stuff like the rules and the format and, and the way things normally happen shouldn't be something that is so vague. It shouldn't be something where before every race we need to look at the stewards' notes and think, well, what, what might they do differently this race? To, to standardise it, I think, would, would clean a lot of things up. And obviously there is an attempt to standardise it at the moment. The rules are the same at every track. You also have the problem of curbs and runoff areas being different at every track. So you are going to have to tailor it to some extent to fit that and, and obviously the design of pit lanes and the direction they're going around the circuit where the grandstands are where the exit roads are there is going to be a natural variation in the design of tracks and the way the rules are going to be applied at those tracks for me the biggest lesson we can learn having some sort of distance from the action in Abu Dhabi now and, and being able to take stock of, of yeah what really happened and, and what the path to to a better future is for the sport it is just going to be a simplification of, of the format. And when we look to potential new qualifying formats or new sprint race formats on Saturdays to drum up extra attendance, a lot of that is going to depend on how good these 2022 cars are and how good that racing product that they deliver is going to be. Because I think to some extent, the culture of um, doing a risky move and then letting the stewards decide whether your move was fair or not is somewhat a product of how how much you have to make your overtakes count because of the nature of the aerodynamics on the cars. And what I mean by that is because the cars are so sensitive, because you suffer so much when you're driving behind another car, it's important that when you have the opportunity to make that move, you do it as quickly as possible and you are willing to take that risk of being pushed off the track or getting your front wing damaged or damaging the other guy's front wing and pushing him off the track. You're willing to take that risk because it's so important for you to make that place and you might not get another opportunity. Now, if the 2022 cars are able to deliver a fairer racing structure where people can go side by side, can go, you know, two tenths behind the car in front for a long period of time without massively suffering, I think there may be a, a sort of cultural change or a stylistic change in the driving that we'll see where drivers will say a lot of the time that they, of course, they want to see fair racing. They want fair racing room to be given to them and, and they try and give it to other people all the time. But obviously, you have to look at it and say, well, if you ask every driver, I'm sure they would say that they've done nothing wrong ever. And no one's ever committed a foul. No one's ever, you know, traveled in the NBA. No one's ever done pass interference in the NFL. If you ask the players, they're always going to be representing their own views. And that's completely justifiable. But the 2022 regulations may offer some potential solution to the sort of culture and the style of racing that we're used to seeing where the people who win, the people who are able to take the biggest advantages out of risk management are the ones who are able to really send it 
you know, and to make the other driver get out the way, the sort of center style of, you know, look, either you're going to let me through here or we're going to touch and it's up to you whether that's happening and you put that pressure on the other guy. The problem is if everyone does that, you get a sort of uh, disappointing outcome where people just end up crashing into each other all the time and maybe it's only going to be the title contenders that are going to drive in that style. But if the 2022 regulatory package is able to deliver cars that are less sensitive, where the risk management calculations are going to be changed a little bit and it's not going to be so important that your move is going to be made every corner, you're going to be able to give the guy more room. You're going to be able to put on a better show, drive side by side for longer. You're going to still fight in those battles and you're still going to try and win and you're still going to push the limits of the rules, whatever they may be. But when the cars are not so sensitive, when, when it's not so critical that you make every move as fast as possible when you're following another car, it's less damage to your overall race time. You can afford to give up a little bit of racing room, a little bit more space to your opponent. You still want to win those battles. You know, they're going to be on the same track. But I do think to some extent, the style might change next year. Hopefully, it, you know, it's an optimistic prediction, but I think that may be something we do see if the regulations and the aerodynamic changes are able to deliver on the promises. In terms of Formula One news throughout the break, a lot of it is internal changes of staff between the teams or sponsors moving around or new sponsors coming in, stuff like that. It's going to be really important to get up those sponsors now as we're going through a regulatory change, but part of the budget cap regulation is designed to stop that influence of uh, the richest team always winning. We'll see how practically that's going to play out. Obviously, the teams that are building their own engines, we know Red Bull taking over the Honda engine manufacturing, becoming a a team that both manufactures their engines, their aeros and their chassis all together in the same location, like Ferrari do and, and like Mercedes have been doing for a while now. It's going to be really critical to uh, take advantage of that, I think, for the rich teams with the budget cap coming in. It's that aspect of teamwork and, and cohesion that is indirectly influenced by money but isn't a directly measured aspect of the budget cap. The richer teams may still prosper as... They've got that environment for creativity and innovation sort of set up with a stronger foundation than the teams with some of the lower budgets. One big transfer of staff that we have seen is the Aston Martin team boss, Otmar Safnauer, moving from the Aston Martin team principal role, potentially over to Alpine. It's rumoured that that contract is already signed and it's just waiting to be announced. Alain Prost has left the Alpine team after some sort of internal dispute. and He was not happy with the way the press handled it. That was a... Uh, Important note on this sort of transition between Aston Martin and Alpine. Aston Martin have already announced their new team boss to come in. Otmar is basically waiting on that announcement that he's going to be running the Alpine team. And another bit of news that has followed that in terms of budget cap talk and uh, economic side of the sport is that BWT, the sponsor that were the principal sponsor of the pink racing point cars, are going to be moving with Otmar over to Alpine. So a bit of new money for them, a bit of a new uh, addition to the livery. It's another important piece of news that's coming up in Formula One, really, before we get into testing, is the presentation of the new liveries. As much as the new regulations are coming in and changing the aerodynamic side of the sport, they're also going to change the appearance of the cars by consequence. You know, the cars are going to look different and the designers of the liveries and the sponsors are going to have to negotiate the new rear wing shape and the new aspects of the car that are going to be changing. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how teams approach that. Obviously, we know teams like Red Bull have had very similar liveries, uh, really, I mean, since sort of 2014, 2015, Red Bull have really stuck with a, a similar sort of pattern, moving sponsors around and moving little aspects of the design. But it might be a potential, you know, new turn 
for the design strategy. We've seen Ferrari move from a sort of cherry red color to this darker, more vintage color that uh, they were originally using in the 1950s that they've looked to bring more into their marketing nowadays. We've seen the return of Santander to Ferrari that was over the Fernando Alonso and Felipe Massa years, the white and red Ferraris as well with Kimi and uh, Sebastian Vettel in 2017-2018. The return of Santander might also offer a uh, design change for the Ferrari team. But I think overall it's going to be really interesting to see what changes the teams are able to make to their liveries, whether they're going to just try and copy over 2021 liveries to 2022 and just sort of work around the changes or whether they're going to take some risks and try and be that new car that stands out on the grid the black mercedes might return they might return to a silver arrows show we uh, we don't know yet could be very cool if they return to the silver arrows new regulatory period like they were in 2014 they were able to take over with the silver arrows cars maybe this year they'll return to that of course with george russell as their new second driver or first driver, depending on how the uh, teammate relationship works out. I think initially for George at the start, it will be hard to fill the shoes of Valtteri Bottas. I think the role that George wants to have in Mercedes is not going to be the same that Valtteri Bottas ended up having. I think if you were to ask Valtteri Bottas at the start, he was ready to go in and put that pressure on Lewis and win championships. But at the end of the day, when you looked at the timing sheets and the rates results, you just knew that wasn't really going to be possible. The odd win I think 10 wins throughout Bottas's stint with Mercedes is the same as what Verstappen got just this year so you know that output is really not good enough to be considered an an equal driver to Lewis but I think for Russell the way in which George was able to step into Lewis's car at the end of 2020 in Bahrain when Lewis had coronavirus really high pressure moment for George there where he had to deliver on an opportunity and uh, you know like we saw in the final race in Abu Dhabi some unfortunate external circumstances really ruined his chances in that race in in Bahrain and to go back into that team and really deliver strong performances you know if if he's able to outperform the Mercedes equipment in the same way that he's outperformed his Williams equipment the potential of that is extremely high because we know Mercedes are going to have one of the best cars on the grid so if he's in one of the best cars on the grid and he's you know maximizing the potential of that car that's what all the great drivers have been able to do and that's what he's going to need to do to take that challenge to Lewis. And I think everyone in the sport is really excited to see that battle play out where you are going to have them likely pitted against the Red Bull pairing of Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez, which is, you know, a a team relationship, a team partnership that's only been together for one season now. But Perez is extremely experienced in the sport. He knows on the timing sheets in a similar way that Valtteri Bottas had to accept reality in that he is going to be somewhat playing a role you know the decisions of his strategy the decisions of his race are going to be to benefit the team and the benefit of the team is going to be prioritizing max and i think the the reality of that when they're going to be pitted against a teammate relationship that lewis hamilton and george russell might have where they're going to be a bit more like the rosberg years and it's going to be a bit more feisty a bit more back and forth a bit of separation in the garage you know it's not the philosophy that mercedes want to have anymore i think they know what went wrong, I suppose, in those years, even while they were dominating the sport, I think the internal culture at Mercedes took a, a bit of flack for that, where they were having their engineers wanting, you know, driver A to beat driver B and, and to have different strategies play out. There wasn't really a cohesion in the debriefs and stuff and the strategy for the engineers. When you have two drivers pitted against each other, it may inhibit progress in a way, but it may also drive progress. I mean, we know from the way Lewis and Verstappen were able to push each other to new heights this year, I think 
similar way in which Fernando Alonso was able to push Lewis in 2007 in Lewis's rookie year. Indirectly, almost, they they benefit from the other one being there, to have a goal to aim at, to have someone to fuel your passion, your drive to push the limits of the sport and to push the limits of your own performance. You need another figure there. You know, it's Schumacher and Hakkinen. They were both open about how they would be faster when they had a race with the other one on track. They would set faster laps while racing. I mean, that's incredible. But the pushing pushing each other to that limit, whether that is going to happen with a driver from another team or the driver from within your own team in the same equipment as you, it's going to have to change your approach to that quite a lot. And the way Mercedes manages that situation is going to be really interesting. Looking then to Ferrari and to have Carlos Sainz, who was one of the standout drivers from last year, easily any top five you know, power ranking of the drivers from last year. Sainz has to be on it. The way in which he was able to come into Ferrari, you know, his fourth team in Formula One to go from Toro Rosso to Renault to McLaren and then to Ferrari. Sainz has a huge amount of experience changing teams, adapting to new equipment. So the way in which he's able to take a challenge with these new regulations is going to be really cool to see to come in and, and really challenge Charles Leclerc, who himself was the man who came in and challenged Sebastian Vettel years before. Carlos really showed out well this season and, and to, you know, to have that roll you into the 2022 cars that may give you an even greater opportunity to show your driver skill and may give you an even greater opportunity to challenge the top teams and to outperform your equipment or at least to compete with similar equipment to the top teams. I think Carlos has a lot of opportunity next year and he's going to be one of my predictions for, for the standout driver and potential title contender next year. I think maybe him and, and Charles Leclerc will push each other in a similar way to the Mercedes pairing. Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris is a pair that could contend for a title. Again, hard to argue against. Lando, just as Carlos uh, signs was, has to be in the conversation for one of the standout drivers of last year. And then when you're putting that together with the experience that Daniel Ricciardo has, and of course the one-two that he was able to stand at the front of in Italy last year, Ricciardo's in a similar position to, to be the one you know pulling that team forward, pulling them into contention. So it could be a four-way title battle next year. If it's going to be anyone, it's going to be one of those four teams. But we could also have a brawn year. We could have a resurgence from a team that's been at the back. You know, Haas from 10th to 1st in the Drivers' Championship would be a beautiful thing to see. But the reality of that, you know, anything could happen and it often does. I think that's the approach we're going to have to have going into these new regulations. And um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I think that's what's most exciting about it. You know, as much as Mercedes can complain and say that the end of last year was unfair, it's the nature of the sport, the way it is, is, is almost an entertainment product. You know, it's not quite professional wrestling, but it, it's getting getting closer year by year, it feels. But there's always going to be another race. There's always going to be another event, another opportunity to take on your rivals. And I think that's what everyone wants to see. Everyone wants to see, you know, the next moment, the next bit of action. So looking into a new regulatory year is going to be maximizing that even more. You know, the uncertainty and the jeopardy that are the main things that I think make races exciting only going to be increased next year. And as we look towards new regulations, I think in terms of action going on currently this week between the uh, Formula One season break, we can touch on the WRC a little bit because linking to Formula One in a way, there in Monte Carlo this weekend is the current season opener of the WRC season. And they similarly have a new regulatory package, uh, more regarding the powertrain system, the implementation of a more powerful hybrid system. 
It's going to be interesting to see how they approach new regulatory uh, years in a similar way. I think the relationship between teammates and, and manufacturers is a little different in WRC. But the role that Monte Carlo plays in the WRC is a little similar to the role that Monaco plays in Formula One. To be that tight, twisty, challenging circuit and to be almost the pinnacle event of the year, maybe the Daytona of NASCAR or the Indy 500 of IndyCar, the WRC Monte Carlo event serves as the season opener. So it's a really interesting challenge when you pair that with the nature of the track, the nature of the stages. Just north of the harbour in Monaco in the French Alps, these stages are similar to the way in which we see the Monaco Grand Prix circuit uh, designed with these thin, twisty bends and, and blind corners and, and barriers always being no more than a metre away at a, at a maximum. The rally stages in the French Alps offer a distinctly difficult challenge in, in terms of the other locations that the WRC goes to throughout the year. One of those chiefly high-risk, high-reward scenarios, we saw... Elfin Evans lose that title in, in the Monte Carlo rally in 2020. And this year we're seeing it be the opening event of the title challenge where Elfin Evans, our British hero in WRC, is looking to finally take that challenge on and replace Sebastian Auger at the man at the top of the sport. We've also seen another French legend of rally return to this event and a man who's currently leading the standings in a sort of exhibition outing with the Ford M Sport team is Sebastian Loeb. Like Schumacher's time in the early 2000s in Formula 1, Loeb was that dominant figure. Sebastian Ogier, another Frenchman, was able to take that crown from him and, and be the dominating figure the later period where maybe Vettel and Hamilton were dominating Formula 1. But both of those French drivers are taking part in this event, but not completing a full WRC season this year. So, so Elvin Evans being second in the standings at the moment, about 10 seconds behind Loeb, is still an important point an important podium for his championship chances the two frenchmen are not competing the entire year which means that you know they're looking to just go out put in performances test out these new cars and really make a dent in the sport make an impact keep their name in the conversation as the best drivers in the sport but of course not putting together another championship you're sure they've both got plenty i'm sure they're not missing the opportunity to take part the full calendar but the opportunity to take part particularly in the Monte Carlo rally because of the nature of how complicated it is, how tricky it is, and how respected it is in the grand prize of WRC locations, it is going to be attracting that star talent. And luckily, we're seeing that star talent be absolutely put to the test with these new cars. In terms of details, the, the new powertrain is a 1.6-litre uh, petrol engine combined with a 100-kilowatt electric engine, producing about 500 horsepower for these cars. You know, the four-wheel drive hatchback chassis but obviously gutted out and and to be you know that real off-road monster that is going to be able to tackle all these different surfaces primarily the surface at the monte carlo rally is sort of cold icy snowy roads tight hairpins where you've got walls and drop-offs and, and you know fences and cliffs at the side of the tracks i think it's that combination all together of the tricky surface the high spectators the new rally regulations that makes this event so exciting why i'm going to be following it so closely this weekend the regulatory changes and, and the big shift of the direction of the wrc the big changes in in the way the cars are built and challenges for the engineers it's the first time this big set of changes has come in since 2017 and we saw that 2017 package go on to create the fastest rally cars of all time so the potential for growth and expansion this year of uh, how fast these cars are going to get is going to be really cool to watch as well one key difference they have taken away 
uh, is the paddle shifting behind the steering wheel. They're moving back to a sort of sequential semi-manual system where you're pushing a stick back and forward and you have a second stick, which is the, the handbrake, a little bit like what the NASCARs are moving to as well with a, you know, it's a stick shift in a way. It creates the image of a stick shift of, of having to take your hand off the wheel and time the gear shifts a bit more efficiently and to do a more physical movement than just flicking a paddle behind the wheel. It almost comes as a, a sort of paradoxical simplification of the rules when at the same time the powertrains are getting more complicated, more efficient, more battery focused and, and more sustainable. To take away the paddle shift it is almost balancing it out of going back to a more simple technology, a more physical technology and taking away the driver aid of a paddle shift and, and being able to keep your your full concentration of all your physical movement just on the wheel in front of you, now there's going to be more to pay attention to within the car. More opportunity to make a mistake and, and more jeopardy for those rally stages where the walls are so tight. Really put to test this weekend, really, really put to test this weekend. One interesting challenge that we did see in the coverage was the noise inside the cars was a particular point of uh, focus. It might be something that the regulatory package is going to have to tackle throughout the year because Drivers were reporting challenges in hearing the co-driver and hearing the instructions of the co-drivers, such a critical part of the rally experience and the challenge of a, a rally stage as a whole. You know, you're to some extent, you're going to have the stage memorized. You're going to know the order of the corners, the nature of the corners, the different surfaces, changes and the speed of your car around those corners, what gear you're meant to be in. That sort of thing is all reviewed and, and, and set out before the race. The drivers are expected to have that knowledge in them. But in the moment, that intuitive translation of co-driver instruction to mechanical sympathy and the understanding of what the car needs to do to go as fast as possible around that stage, it's a much faster processing. And, and hearing the co-driver instructions of whether it is you know, a, a sweeping left turn or a hairpin or a square turn or a bridge or a water or a jump, whatever it could be, it's going to be critical to your speed. It's going to be critical to which driver pairing is able to put together the fastest time throughout the whole weekend of, of the rally. The relationship with the co-driver and any mistakes the co-driver might make are going to be really damaging to that. But independent of the mistake the co-driver could potentially make is just going to be the idea of being able to hear the co-driver no matter what they're saying, whether it's perfect. If you can't hear them, if, if the new noises of the cars, this new hybrid system is too loud, it's inhibiting any radio communication, even when you've got the volume turned all the way up, you think you have it set up well. If it's bringing up those sort of problems, you know, it's going to be something that maybe was an unpredicted flaw of the new regulations and is going to have to be changed throughout the year. So it could be cool to see how that plays out, whether we'll see any big uh, mistakes or solutions to that problem. Like Formula One, you know, in, in any category, the new regulations are an opportunity for teams that may traditionally not have been as competitive near the top to, to move, move around and maybe find some little technical innovation or little loophole. There's also there's a similar structure uh, with the wind tunnel time in Formula One where the teams lower down in the Constructors' Championship are given more wind tunnel time to sort of balance it out. In WRC, it's more simple just with testing hours. You know, each team has areas and parts of the world that they like to go and test their cars in and the amount of time you're allowed to spend testing is what is iterated between the teams it's what is going to be the difference between the team at the bottom is going to get more testing time the team at the top it's sort of perceived like well you don't need the testing time you're already at the top so we're going to bring the grid a bit closer together by having that difference in, in testing time between the top and the bottom teams and sebastian loeb is competing with the ford m sport uh, team in his sort of ex exhibition outing this weekend at the Monte Carlo Rally. 
you know, and he's leading the standings. And, and that Ford team were third in the standings last year behind Toyota and Hyundai, who were the two sort of giants that tend to compete every year. Ford existed with a bit of a separation behind that. As much as uh, British driver Gus Greensmith was trying to outperform the car and really openly doing the best he could every weekend, the M Sport team did end up finishing, finishing last. And, and then they were able to benefit from that increased testing time, which we've seen not only from the entrance of Loeb back into that team, such a legendary quick driver. We've got Loeb coming back into that team, coming back into a team that has had so much testing time could be what is propelling him to the top of the standings at the moment. We will see. He could crash at any point. Any point right now, while I'm recording the podcast, the rally is underway. Can't bring you action that directly because I am focused on doing the podcast, but the rally is underway at the moment. And anything could happen, and it often does. You know, we've, we've said that already this episode, and, and, and I'll say it again. But it's especially true at the Monte Carlo rally where the walls and the cliff faces and, and the surface are all out to get you. They're all opportunities not only to go faster, but also to get thrown off the road and to, to completely wipe out your car and your chances at the podium. So the Monte Carlo rally, check it out. I would highly recommend there are some uh, super stages, they called, or, you know, little 20 minute long onboard bits of footage that are on YouTube of, of the most beautiful bits of the Monte Carlo rally. I mean, it's video game stuff, some of these backdrops. It is absolutely beautiful. And the speed at which, you know, they're able to tackle these little roads in, in these souped up hatchbacks is, is amazing to watch. One key thing that is important in rally and that Sebastian Loeb was so famous for in, in his driving style is like a smoothness and a control of, of processing those intuitive instructions from your co-driver, translating them into what the car needs to go quickly around the corners you're being you know, instructed to go around with the smoothness and with the control and with the steering wheel that you're not yanking back and forth. You're not correcting understeer and oversteer the whole time. You're just gliding this car along through the stage. That's kind of how Loeb drives. It's a similar attribute that Lewis has gained, I think, in, in the Mercedes years, his ability to control the tyre temperatures and, and warm up the tyres and his ability to get less degradation on his tyres than other drivers. We've seen Sergio Perez get complimented for the same thing. Jensen Button's smooth driving style, another one who incorporates that smoothness and that control into their way of going faster in their cars. Loeb is similar to that and maybe... Calais Rovampera, a young Finnish rally driver, or Oliver Solberg, another young driver. Maybe, you know, a bit more Verstappen style in their, uh, their approach to the stage. Both are exciting to watch and both are competitive. So, um, yeah, we, we'll see. Maybe it's Loeb for the win with the Ford team. Maybe Elfin Evans will uh, bring that title challenge on. I think his contenders are going to be Thierry Nerville, Adrian Formo, uh, maybe even Gus Greensmith, if, if that Ford is as, as fast as Loeb is making it look at the moment. Could be the title tenders this year, but we know uh, OGA and Loeb both aren't competing for the title throughout the whole year. So it's really going to be up to that rest of the grid to, to try and take their crown and to show themselves to be that new dominating uh, figure in the sport. In another part of the racing world, we also have the Formula E season opener coming up soon. Uh, we know Antonio Giovinazzi has been moved out of Formula One. He's taken up a seat in Formula E. He's looking to make an impact in that sport. And of course, you also have reigning champion Nick De Vries, who's the Mercedes Formula One reserve driver, Formula Two champion in his own right. Never been given a chance to race a Formula One car yet, but he's looking to go back to back with, you know, Formula Two championships and really build up that CV. Because I think at the end of the day, as much as you can dominate Formula E, it is still, I think, in a lot of the drivers' minds, just a step along the path to one of the more top level series like IndyCar or, of course, Formula One. 
it is definitely a cool racing product. I mean, the ability that they have to make these tight, windy street circuits in, you know, primarily European cities like London or Paris, where they're able to weave together tracks we've never seen before and track design approaches that we haven't seen in other sports purely because they're able to avoid that problem of pollution in, in cities and they're able to get permits to build circuits in places where petrol racing series wouldn't be able to. It's similar to the approach that Extreme E has taken. We know the ownership connections between Formula E and Extreme E are quite tight. But the approach that Extreme E has is to be that electric off-road series is also to, to not be, you know, representing that petrol-fueled, highly carbon-emitting sector of the motorsport industry and to be an alternative to that. They play an important role, but I think in terms of the minds of the drivers, it is still always going to be that stepping stone. It's not going to be as high prize money, as high fan attendance, as high, you know, viewing numbers on television or in general media presence at all and just respect within the within the wider context of, of motorsport. But it's always going to be up there. I mean, it, and it feels like it's moving up as more drivers like Giovinazzi make the move over. We know Giovinazzi is a high quality driver. He's been able to put together Q3 laps before in his Alfa Romeo. He's been able to score points at times when the opportunity has arisen and, and to be close to world champion Kimi Raikkonen in qualifying, even beat him on occasion. We know Kimi maybe wasn't pushing as hard as, as he ever has in those sessions, but still, it's an impressive ach achievement for Giovinazzi. So his ranking compared to the rest of the field in Formula E is going to be cool to see whether he's got competitive equipment or not. As a, a, you know, a, a Formula 1 driver in modern Formula 1 who has been competitive, it will be cool to see that transfer. We know Felipe Massa has done it, we know... We know, of course, John Eric Verne, who was Toro Rosso driver with Daniel Ricciardo. John Eric Verne has found a lot of success in Formula E and Antonio Felix da Costa, another potential uh, Formula One seat opportunist in uh, forthcoming years. But we know because of Gran Ujo's entrance and, and the economic structure of Formula One, it is going to be hard to put that together unless you're able to either have an undeniable set of dominant achievements in other categories or a really big budget that is maybe going to be attracted by that good cv but also by family ties business connections and, and whatever you are going to have to come in with that big budget to really make a dent in formula one unless we get some new teams coming in but formula e season opener like the rally season opener and like bahrain uh, will be for formula one it's a new set of opportunities the regulations aren't changing as much in formula e as they are in other categories so it might be more of a stable uh, progression of the teams from last season compared to the other categories but still going to be really cool to see how the new drivers are going to be able to take on the challenges and uh, whether Nick DeVries is going to be able to go back to back with those titles. If he is able to do that, then how can you take him out of the conversation? I mean, we know Oscar Piastri has gone back to back Formula 3 and Formula 2 titles, which is like, you know, that's meant to be the route. That's meant to be what you have to do is win Formula 3, win Formula 2, you get to Formula 1. And, and we know Oscar will be in Formula 1 2023 four maybe in that alpine team you know that contract is, is basically already signed but maybe the level of, of which he's you know sort of getting stiffed at the moment and, and not being able to race in a car that he deserves to race in it might create that opportunity for him to be poached by another category whether it is indycar like calamilo has gone to or uh, felix rosenquist alex Pelot, and another european driver who was in that circuit of uh, european junior formula racing make that move to America and you're presented with a whole new set of uh, investors and a new class of drivers, a new style of tracks. Formula E 
represents, you know, a similar, if, if a more minor shift to that. You know, Giovinazzi was pushed out of Formula One. It's not like he wanted to be a Formula E driver as his first priority, but obviously to some extent it must still represent a valuable opportunity for him, whether it is just to hone his own driving skills or to get his name back in the open wheel racing conversation as one of the top top names. We shall see. We shall see. With regards to bikes, there's not really been a lot happening. The teams have more private test systems in MotoGP and um, the way in which, you know, progress in the regulations and progress in uh, little devices is going to be more obvious when we arrive at, in March to the opening MotoGP race. It's going to be a lot more clear uh, than it is at the moment in terms of how those teams are going to be organized and what the structure is going to be. You know, we know Ducati, Yamaha, Honda are going to be the the conversation of the leading teams, just like we know that McLaren, Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes are going to be in the conversation at the top of Formula One. But the order of that set is still yet to be determined. And for Fabio Quattararo, returning to a MotoGP paddock as the champion, as the figure to beat, with a Marc Marquez who, you know, is still a little bit on the fence as to whether his old riding style was ever going to be able to be returned to, and a Peko Bagnaia who crashed out at the final race, loses his championship and is ready to come back in in, in that hot Ducati and take on Quattararo. Similarly uh, enticing prospect of an exciting MotoGP season this year alongside Rally, alongside Formula E, alongside Formula One. Can't wait for those bikes to get back up and running, but we shall see when that happens. We also have the Daytona 500 coming up in February and the opening NASCAR race at the LA Coliseum. Uh, similarly, new regulatory package for NASCAR next year or this season, I suppose, and um, new regulatory package for NASCAR this year. So it's going to be really cool to see how those cars behave. We've seen in the testing for NASCAR, actually, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr., who's you know more of a media commentator now on a, on a podcast like me. We've seen Dale get really out there and be involved in the testing process, being able to involve the presenters and, and the people that are now in charge of delivering the racing product to the fans and you know explaining it, getting them involved with the testing process and getting them to really understand how the cars behave probably be a similar thing that we'll see in formula one we know martin brundle throughout the years with sky is, is able to do these special little features whether he's driving the w10 or he's driving the ferrari at fiorano test track with uh, with that team the insight of which those x drivers and presenters are able to draw out of those private tests are also really cool to see and another thing we've seen with the uh with the nascar testing has been that they they test them in drafts, so they 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 test the slipstreaming ability of the cars, where they're going to set up ten cars, you know, running with three lanes, round a track, to simulate how they're going to behave in that environment. It's going to be really important for the idea of restrictor plate racing and the style that we see in in modern NASCAR, that those cars are able to offer something new and to offer something that maybe wasn't able to be achieved by the previous regulatory generation like we want to see across categories. You know, it is just good, clean, fair racing and having the driver make the difference and, and having exciting cars to watch. One of the key points in NASCAR is that the exciting cars to watch are based on cars that are available to purchase, whether it is a Mustang or a, you know, a Dodge or whatever. Those cars, you know, should be to some extent representative of the cars that are actually able to, to be driven on the road. And part of the regulatory package is to make them more similar, to make them more, you know, recognizable as uh, stock cars, as, as cars that are based on, you know, the foundations of uh, achievable, not overpriced, not, you know, not supercars, not GT3 cars. You know, these are NASCARs. So we'll see in, the, in Daytona 
little bit like the WRC, I suppose. Daytona is uh, the title pinnacle event of the NASCAR season, and it's, it's also going to be one of the first races this year. Normally, it is the first race, but the first race this year in NASCAR is going to be in Los Angeles. They've converted the sort of stadium or concert venue of the LA Coliseum into an, a really small uh, NASCAR track. So that's also going to be pretty cool. That's where these new 2022 NASCARs are going to make their debut. We will patiently await that day. The opening of the 2022 NASCAR season should be really cool. And I'll be right here to give you all the analysis and all the best headlines that arise from that. And, and we can look forward to the season moving on after that as well. But I think we can call it a day there for this week. This has been a really cool episode just to look back on some of the uh, changes we've seen over the break. A little bit of distance now from all the controversy at the end of last season and, and a look to the future of the new regulatory packages and the different series around the world that are taking on this new year with optimism and with a, a hope to drive their sport to the forefront of the motorsport conversation and to be that pinnacle of, of innovation. Really can't wait for it all to get back started again and, and to get all the action. I'll be back in the studio next week to break down all the results of the Monte Carlo rally. Uh, we also had virtual Le Mans 24 hour take place recently, which is really cool to watch. Max Verstappen actually crashed out of the lead of the virtual 24 hour race. Very hard to watch that happen. But, uh, after Verstappen crashes out of that race, the official stream channel on YouTube lost about 30% of their viewers. You know, once Verstappen was out, what's the point, right? But uh, overall, as an event, the virtual 24 hours, kind of a proof of concept, really, and maybe not a, a particularly great proof of concept because there were a host of technical issues that really messed up a lot of races for people. We saw the W Series tried to submit a team, you know, qualified for the race, were in a position to be competitive. But the W Series team, you know, experienced server issues. They, they, whatever bit of machinery wasn't working the way it was meant to, and they were disconnected, and they, and they never got to start the race after qualifying and after putting in all that effort to prep the drivers and the tech. Maybe, I suppose, like one little error on a real car. But the problem is, is going to be that one little error can, can hold you back massively and, and can completely wipe out the race, whether it is just a bit of code or, or a bit of something not plugged in right or a bit of, you know, software that's not responding correctly. So many technical barriers exist for long-form endurance online racing. Nonetheless, though, it was a pretty cool event to see that many people competing in it. To have the Formula One world champion, you know, after winning the title in such a way, over the off-season to have Max come in and, and be committed to the value of sim racing, we know from how he talks about it in interviews that it is a valuable opportunity for him to develop his driving skills. And the simulations now are so accurate that they are really, even for a Formula One world champion... You know, it's like a test almost. It's like a new opportunity for him to be that leader of the team, to be, you know, the, the, the title man of a different team, you know, outside of Red Bull in this esports world. You know, Max, you know, not only is it a bit less structured than Formula One, of course, it's a bit more laid back. For Max, it is still that opportunity to win. It is still that opportunity to compete and to improve yourself through that perpetual strive to, to be the best. It's important for such a figure like Max, who is, you know, the best the man at the top of the world at the moment, to say, no, look, this esports stuff is not, it's not just a game. It's not just a waste of time. It's not just a distraction. It's there to be taken advantage of. It's there to be used the right way to draw the maximum out of it is going to be really, really valuable. So it's a really cool statement from Max, even though he did crash out of the lead of that race. You can question how much it was really honing his driving skill. But it's really important that he's able to make that statement and be that figure for the esports community to come in there and say, look, this is really important stuff. And alongside that, we also have Kem Bolakbasi, who's a Turkish driver, 
little bit of experience in Formula Renault and Junior Formula, Formula 4 and stuff. Also, with a little bit of experience in GT driving, uh, Ken was able to make the move as a younger driver to esports. He was the 2017 uh, F1 esports world champion, I think. And, and that competition, even in its early stages, you know, we see now a driver called Jano Otmir being the standout Formula 1 esports driver. Ken's still in the conversation, but is now looking to move on to real-life opportunities. And a big step for the esports community has been just this week to see Ken Bullock-Bassey make that move into real-life, actual FIA full-time Formula 2. So to move from being a, you know, Formula Renault driver who's just in that mix with so many other people his age looking to make that step up to proper motorsport and to be that paid opportunity to, you know, prove yourself, not being able to make it work the traditional route, then stepping into esports, being able to prove your competitiveness and prove your discipline and your skill and your talent in esports, then to have that reimbursed by a real-life racing team that is able to take stock of your achievements and, and you know, call you a valuable driver and, and say that you have this opportunity, you've earned this opportunity, and now it's, you know, your turn to make it count. To have that be gifted to an esports champion as opposed to just another junior Formula champion, it's a really important step. So a lot of eyes will be on Formula 2 this year as well as we look to that season. Keep your eye out for Ken Bullock-Bassey. Could be really cool. He might be, you know, there might be growing pains. It might be difficult for him to adapt to that environment, but I think he's definitely ready for it. Uh, and it'll be really cool to see how he's able to challenge, whether his driving style is going to be distinctly different, whether there are mistakes that he'll make that maybe another driver wouldn't make, or whether there are opportunities that he's able to have that other drivers maybe wouldn't notice, you know? Both sides of that are going to be really cool to watch. So keep an eye out for that. I think that's all from me this week. Thank you very much for listening to episode nine of the Jack Throwful Show. I look forward to getting back to these weekly episodes. Now I'm back in the studio, back up in Lancaster, back at Barrel Rig FM. Really cool to get this show back up and running. And I'm looking forward to another great year of motorsport action. Once again, thank you very much for listening. Please make sure to rate, review and, and subscribe to Barrel Rig FM on whatever your chosen podcast platform is. But that's all from me this week. I will let the intro song play you out and I will see you next week. <laughs>